live from Earth, it's Space Radio. This is Paul Sutter, and coming up, we're talking about pouring one out for the great planet hunter in the sky, and if I have time, giant exploding stars of doom, and also science, and of course, taking listener questions about all things in the universe, because that's what this show is about. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern. You can call 888-581-0708 to join the conversation. And in today's Blue Shift, I'll be talking about making a hypothesis. But first, the news. Hello, space fans. Welcome to Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Ohio State, chief scientist at COSIGN for the next half hour, your agent of the stars. Got an exciting show for you today on Space Radio where we talk about all the beautiful things in this beautiful universe. This show lives on listener questions. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern here in Studio A of WCBE Radio Columbus. You can call 888-581-0708 live or anytime and leave a voicemail. Get those calls in. You also follow along with the Space Cadets on the YouTube and Twitch live streams, tuning in live from around the world, including but not limited to Ashburton, New Zealand, Salt Lake City, Sofia, Bulgaria, the Solar System, Odds Hungary, Allentown, PA, Norway, and London, and Austin. I'm seeing get them getting in right now as I speak in those cities in so I can announce them on the air. Go to spaceradioshow.com for the links on how to join these live streams. We'll take questions that you send there too. Seriously, folks, I've only prepped 10 minutes of show material at the most, so get those calls in. Before I start taking calls, I wanted to share some interesting bits of news that I caught recently. And, you know, there better be taps in the background of this, Greg, in the show airing because the Kepler space mission is done. A moment of silence, please. Thank you. The Kepler Space Telescope has been running for a decade, a decade, which is way longer than the original mission plan. And it is a was man, still haven't gotten used to it, was a planet hunter extraordinaire. It found it found thousands of planets orbiting other stars most of which, about half of which, have been confirmed. So it gets a detection, it gets a signal, then passes that information along to ground-based telescopes and observatories for additional follow-up and more observation and confirmation. So even though the mission is done because it ran out of fuel, and it ran out of fuel so it can't keep its station, it can't keep pointing in one spot on the sky for a very long time anymore, which is kind of essential for astronomy, and it also can't rotate itself so it points its communication antenna back to Earth and transmit all the data and then go off back hunting. Can't do any of that anymore, so NASA called it quits. I called it a few months ago. A few months ago, NASA said it was running low on fuel. So we knew it was in hospice care. It was just, we were just trying to make the spacecraft comfortable, you know, in its final months, you know, so it could go to sleep peacefully. And it has, and, and now the end is here. And it's it's time to, one, reflect on the legacy of this amazing, amazing instrument and how wildly successful it was. And also look to the future, that its successor, the 
test instrument is already up, already collecting data, already has some hints of po some possible planets around other stars. So its successor is already up. Like this is perfectly transitioned where we're end of lifing one instrument and ramping up its successor to keep searching for planets outside the solar system. Really looking for Earth 2.0 here. That's the end game. That is the end game. Or that's the, the end of the first game, and then it goes right into a new game after that. If you find an Earth 2.0, you're going to be asking if there's Life 2.0. But goal number one is Earth 2.0. We haven't found Earth 2.0, but Kepler has definitely given us a tremendously complete and robust picture of what kind of planets orbit, what kind of stars, what are their demographics, what are the chances of finding an Earth-like star. And the space cadets are asking about Kepler right now. Raj Luther is asking, is it possible to retrieve the Kepler Space Telescope? Well, here's the thing. The Kepler Space Telescope is not in orbit around the Earth. It is in orbit around the Sun. It is millions of miles away from us. We are never getting that hunk of spacecraft back. And in fact, there might be some data stored on it that will never be transmitted to Earth, and so we'll never know what secrets it may have uncovered. But there will be decades more of analysis to come because not all the data has been processed. We haven't gone through, we haven't done double checks, we haven't found confirmations. So there's plenty of work to do from this instrument. Even though it's done, its data lives on. What a wonderful legacy. That's the latest and greatest when it comes to space. It's time to have a conversation. We've got a voicemail lined up here on Space Radio, so I'm going to play it. Greg, go for it. Hi, Paul. This is Alex from Allentown, PA. I caught Ask a Spaceman yesterday, and we were talking about strange lights. And ever since I heard of Cherenkov radiation, I just thought it was the coolest thing. And when I saw pictures of it, it made me wonder. I, I love the blue glow of it, but is that because of the medium that the charged particle is going through, or would it be a different color in a different medium like glass or air? And what about the charged particle? Does that make a difference in the light? And lastly, what would a spectroscopy of that light show? Would it be the medium or something else? Thanks, Paul. Really, really fun question. Thank you so much for that. And uh, so he's referencing a podcast episode I did, the Ask a Spaceman podcast, where I did all the strange lights in the universe. And I went through a few examples of synchrotron emission, black body emission, and something called Cherenkov emission. Cherenkov emission is caused when a charged particle blasts through a medium like air or water, and where it goes faster than the speed of light in that material. It's never going to go faster than the speed of light in vacuum. That's kind of a rule of the universe, but it can beat light in a medium. So light goes through water or air slightly slower, and you can shove particles fast enough and it will beat light. And what this radiation is, it's a fun way to think about this, is it's like a bow shock, like a sonic boom, but for light, a light boom. 
And the question is about the color. There's this characteristic ghostly bluish whitish color that comes off of Trankov radiation. By the way, we see this in space like everywhere. And we also see it near nuclear reactors. So if you put a bunch of water around a nuclear reactor, there's charged particles streaming out of there faster than the speed of light in the water. And so you get this lovely, lovely blue light. I mean, it's cool light. Don't go anywhere near it. If you see Trankov radiation, you are probably going to die. So I advise you to back off. But the color comes from the energy. You are accelerating particles to extreme velocities, faster than the speed of light in that medium. And that's very energetic. So it's going to give off high energy radiation. It's going to give off blue light, ultraviolet, X-rays, maybe even gamma rays. So you're never really going to see, oh, I suppose I shouldn't say never. You're rarely going to see low energy Trankov radiation because you need high energy situations to even cross the threshold of making a light boom and creating this kind of radiation. So depending on the charge of the particle, the mass of the particle, the thickness, the goopiness of the medium that it's traveling through, that will change the details of this Trankov radiation. You might be a little bit bluer, you might be more ultraviolet, you might even be x-ray if you're hard enough, but Overall, it's going to be on that high energy end of the spectrum. Great question. Thank you so much for the voicemail. And remember, you can call 888-581-0708 anytime and leave a voicemail to get your question on the show. And coming from the Space Cadets, S-A-H-M, asking about, again, this orientation of Kepler. Like, there's been a lot of angst in the chat about why... Does a spacecraft that is just sitting in one spot need any fuel? Because you can do this thing called reaction wheels where you just collect energy using something like a solar panel, store it in something like a battery, and then you have flywheels attached to the spacecraft that you can spin up or spin down, and through conservation of angular momentum, you can turn the body of the spacecraft. Just like if you're on, say, a wheelie office chair, you can you can twist one way and you'll start twisting, you can throw your body another way and you'll twist the other direction. It's like that, but in space and with a lot more engineering behind it. The Kepler spacecraft did have fuel. The reaction wheels that it did have were used for station keeping, for fine-tuned pointing, but it still needed to maneuver around, like I'm gonna stare at this chunk of space, and then I'm gonna point at this chunk of space over here, and that requires more than reaction wheels can provide. It needed fuel, it needed to squirt fuel out of the sides, a little bit of propellant so it can twist and turn in space. And that's what it ran out of. And so it can't do that anymore. It can't do the job it needs to do as a telescope. There is an interesting little backstory for Kepler that I'll get into in the next segment about how it almost ended five years ago, but it kept going. And, and so I'll continue in a little bit. This is Space Radio. This show is brought to you by you. Go to patreon.com slash PM Sutter. Yes, I'm talking to you. Go there now to learn how you can support the show. Hi, it's Ray from Car Talk. 
a lot of people have an old car they'd love to get rid of, but get this. One generous WCBE fan donated a 1941 Plymouth Special Deluxe. Somehow, it managed to slip through my claws, and I'm ashamed of myself for that. But it generated cash for the station. That old car has been turned into Morning Edition, All Things Considered, and more. Good work, Ohioans. Keep those cars coming. Find out more by clicking on the Support WCBE tab at WCBE.org. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. We've got more Space Cadet questions ready to go. But remember, you can join the conversation by calling 888-581-0708 anytime. You can leave a voicemail or call in live. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Go to spaceradioshow.com for all the info and the links. Got a Space Cadet question here. Turning away from Kepler because <gasps> Kepler can't turn itself. Get it? It's uh, It's out of fuel. That's the joke. Anyway, some Emray on YouTube, one of the space cadets, asks, I've never understood how the expansion of the universe takes place. Does the space between two objects stretch, or is more space being added out of nothing, causing two objects to drift apart? And I think this question, so I actually get this question a lot. I may or may not address the question in my new book, Your Place in the Universe, Understanding Our Big Messy Existence, coming out bookstores nationwide November 20th. Sorry, I couldn't resist plugging the book. So the question is, like, does space, when we say the universe is expanding, is the space between two galaxies stretching out or is more space being added? And I think this question comes from are the use of analogies that we use to, to tackle this problem, to address this problem, to talk about this problem, where we imagine space-time as a giant rubber sheet, and it can be stretch and bend and fold and do all sorts of cool stuff, or we imagine the expansion of the universe as if it were an expanding balloon or a, a piece of bread baking in the oven. We think of this expansion, material expansion. I'm going to tell you here, the question of is space being stretched out or is more space being added? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because both of those terms, both of those words are themselves analogies. In the mathematics and we in physics is a mathematical description of the universe. So I have to go back to the mathematics in the mathematics that describes the expansion of the universe. You have something called the metric. The metric is just the ruler of the universe. Not ruler as in emperor. <laughs> ruler as in measuring tape. It's the measuring tape of the universe. It marks the distances between any set of points. So if I have two galaxies, I have a metric. It gives me a distance between those two galaxies. And in general relativity, our mathematical description for gravity for the expansion of the universe. When we say two galaxies get further apart in time, all that means, all that means is that the metric, the set of rulers we use to measure distances get bigger. That you'll look one day and the galaxies will be a certain distance apart and you'll turn around and get preoccupied and then the next day you go check, those galaxies will be further apart. That's all it says. That's it. That's it. Things like words like stretching or creation or addition, these are extra verbiage 
added on like window dressing or salad dressing or any other kind of dressing you prefer on top of the mathematics so that we can communicate it without actually having to write down mathematical equations all the time. So when you're puzzled by this, and I totally get it, I totally get how you can be puzzled by this, like is, is, stretch being, is, universe, is, is space being stretched or is space being created between two galaxies? It's neither. It's neither. It's the distance between two galaxies changes with time. That is it. That is it. Just retreat back. Whenever analogies become confusing, whenever metaphors lead to more questions than answers, then it's time to abandon the metaphors, abandon the analogies, retreat back to the mathematics because the mathematics are crystal, crystal clear. And the mathematics just say the distance between two galaxies will increase with time. And that's it. So try not to worry about it. Try not to have too much angst over it because this is just the way the universe works. That's cool. I've got a question from Carol Sharp, one of the space cadets on YouTube, saying, hello, everybody. Hello, Carol. I know you will have a good show. Thank you very much. She's asking, what's going on with the Higgs boson? Is it safe or not? She loves the emails, loves the show. Thank you so much, Carol. Love your support. Now, the Higgs boson. Now, what's going on with that? The Higgs boson is a particle. Don't get too hung up on the name. Higgs is a guy, Peter Higgs, named after Peter. Could have just called it the Peter boson. That sounds legit, right? Boson is a kind of particle, so don't, don't worry about it too much. It's just a name. It's just a name for a particle that we know exists, was hypothesized to exist for decades, finally discovered about 10, 13 years ago, if I remember right, at the Large Hadron Collider, finally found evidence for this particle, and it plays a very, very important role in our universe. It provides for mass in an exceedingly complicated way, and not all kinds of mass, just things like electrons, maybe neutrinos, through interactions with the Higgs boson, they get mass. I am not going into that story right now. Just, just know that the Higgs boson plays a very, very important role. And it also plays a potentially very important role in the future of our universe. Because what we found, we found something interesting in high-energy physics. When you go to higher and higher energies, as you start smashing rocks together at higher and higher energies, the physics of the universe changes. We, at high energies, you don't have four forces of nature anymore. You only have three or maybe two. And at extremely high energies, maybe even one. Our universe is a low energy fractured state of a higher energy, more, uh, I hesitate to use this word, but I'm going to go for it, pure state a more symmetric state that as the universe cooled and aged, it fractured apart, gave rise to the four forces of nature in the particles and fields that we call our own. And it's been in this state for like 13.8 billion years. So maybe that's the ground state of the universe. This is the final, final state, but maybe not. Maybe it's got another bit to go. Maybe this isn't the final form of the universe. And it's governed of whether this is the final form of the universe, whether our universe will remain stable 
forever or eventually fall into a lower energy state is governed by the mass of the Higgs boson. If the mass of the Higgs boson is above the, a certain threshold, then our universe is unstable and will eventually decay where there's brand new forces, brand new physics, and we're all dead. Sorry about that. And if it's below a certain threshold, then don't worry. It's all chill. We'll be obliterated by some other process, I'm sure, but not through a phase transition in the late universe. The current measured value of the Higgs boson puts it right on the line. So thank you, nature, for adding stress to our lives. That's the last thing we need is fretting over in a complete existential, and I mean the absolute epitome of the word existential crisis into our lives. Thanks, nature. We're almost out of time today on Space Radio, but before we go, it's time for the blue shift. I'm Paul Sutter, and you're listening to Space Radio, and this is The Blue Shift, my opportunity to get a little bit closer to you. And I just wanted to say thank you for all the listeners who came out to the performance of TikTok last Saturday night with Siren Modern Dance, exploring the nature of time through movement and through science, through narration, through music, through dance. It was a wonderful evening where we got to open up this collaborative process, show you how a collaboration between a scientist and a choreographer in a dance company actually works and actually produces results. It was a totally magical evening. I had an amazing time. And that's not the only science and art thing I do. I was also very, very lucky to serve as a juror for an art exhibition hosted by the Columbus Cultural Arts Center called Hypotheses, Art Inspired by the Many Worlds of Science. And I served with Professor Amy Young's, an art professor at the, at the Ohio State University. And we picked the art. We picked the art. There were hundreds of submissions. We picked, I think, 50 to go in the exhibition. And the artwork is absolutely stunning. There'll be a link on the website. It's still an exhibition now if you're living in Columbus. Uh, it's free. Just show up. It's there. And if you're not in Columbus, then go online. Go to spaceradioshow.com for a link to the Columbus Cultural Arts Center. They have some samples from the work on their website from the exhibition. And just absolutely mind-blowing stuff. I mean... Stuff, ways of approaching the world, ways of approaching science, ways of communicating science, ways of approaching how we understand the world through science in a ways that I would have never imagined. Absolute, pure, unadulterated creativity and artistic expression that connected to me as a scientist and science communicator. I hope it, it connects to you. I had a lot of fun serving on the jury for that. The best jury I've ever served on. I will say that. And I want to close the show. I meant to do a joke uh, when I was talking about Kepler. I know I did a couple jokes, but I have to give it to Campbell Duncan uh, from New Zealand, who said five years ago, Kepler, the Kepler Space Telescope, suffered two gammy knees, two gammy knees. Two of its reaction wheels failed, absolutely failed, and it should have ended the mission right there, but instead the engineers were able to orient the spacecraft just right so that the light from the sun itself struck the spacecraft in such a specific way that it could maintain the precision of pointing it needed to continue its mission despite two gammy 
knees. Love that expression. Thank you, Campbell Duncan, one of the space cadets. And unfortunately, this broadcast is almost done. Thank you for joining me on this voyage of space radio. Once again, I'm Paul Sutter, and this show is brought to you by the Ohio State University Department of Astronomy. Learn more at astronomy.osu.edu. This show is also brought to you by you. Yes, you. Go to patreon.com slash pmsutter to learn how you, yes, you, can contribute. Thanks to Greg Mobius for producing, Nancy Graziano for wrangling the space cadets, Dan Michalko for being awesome, and all the fine crew at WCBE Radio for making this show possible. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Call 888-581-0708. Leave a voicemail if you want, or you can join me on the air. You can also catch the YouTube and Twitch live streams. Go to spaceradioshow.com for the links. Or you can follow me directly on all social media platforms. My name is at Paul Matt Sutter. And of course, thanks again, Earthlings, for listening. See you next week. And remember, science is for sharing. And transmission.